Dear listener and fellow story lover, this week's piece is an interview, an interview with the famed Thomas Edison. It is interesting to hear the echo of his thoughts from 109 years ago. I hope you enjoy this week's Stories from Before. Today and Tomorrow Written by Thomas A. Edison Read by Selina Cadell By permission of the Lutterworth Press Music by Stacey Weir Thomas A. Edison, who is now nearing 67 years of age, was not long ago voted first among the 10 most useful Americans in a competition in a high-class American magazine. He has practically ceased talking for publication because he needs to conserve his strength and because his cares of business and invention were never greater than today. It was therefore special kindness on his part when he consented, amid extra harassment of preparations to go on a holiday tour to Florida, to give the following interview. The interview is composed of a two-hours chat and a series of written questions to which Mr Edison put down the answers in his own hand between midnight and one o'clock in the morning after a regular day's work. He had no time for pressing affairs of his own, but he took time to talk for our readers. The inventor of the incandescent lamp and phonograph is still addicted to long hours. A recent time card, he punches time cards like any employee, show that he worked in his laboratory in West Orange, New Jersey, late at night several times in a week. During the past year, while perfecting the disc phonograph, he organised and headed one of his old-fashioned insomnia squads, which stayed with him at work in the laboratory and the works for five weeks without more than two or three hours sleep in the 24. A caterer brought food, the men's wives brought occasional shifts of clothing, Mr Edison's own time card showed then that he was working 120 to 140 hours in a week. Since his slight illness last year, the inventor has perforce slackened a trifle in his time-devouring pace. It is incredible how he labours still and keeps in touch not only with the complexities of his scientific research, but with the minuet of a manufacturing business employing 5,000 persons. In returning the past year to the perfection of the phonograph, which he invented 36 years ago, Mr Edison was confronted with a problem involving the fact that a fingerprint on a piece of glass or a microscopic bit of dust will make discordant the musical note carried by the phonographic diamond point needle. Thousands of experiments, chemical and physical, were needed to battle with fingerprints, infinitesimal specks of dirt and other obstacles in the way of the perfect phonograph. The following is the information supplied by Mr Edison in answer to the interviewer's questions. What is the trend of invention? Application of electricity to all moving things. The most significant invention of 1913? Manufacture of ammonia from hydrogen and oxygen. What work of your own during the past year is most important? Perfection of the recording of music by the new disc phonograph. What of the flying machine? I don't know. What of setting off explosives by wireless? It has been of no value except for military murder. Is radium to be harnessed? It is driving a clock in Paris. Radium so far has only a scientific value. No one can predict. There are enormous possibilities. What of new sources of power? 
Sun engines of considerable power, 20 to 30 horsepower, are working in Africa and Arizona. There are many inventors working on the problem. Burning coal at the mouth of the mine, converting the power into electricity, and transmitting the power over long distances, has already been put into effect in Nova Scotia and in England. Forming producer gas by setting the vein of coal on fire and using the gas in gas engines has not, to my knowledge, been applied. It is, in my opinion, possible, especially when coal advances in price. The deeper and smaller veins, from which it is impossible to extract the coal without great expense, could be worked in this way. The unavailable coal in these veins is enormous. Tapping internal heat of the earth is out of the question until coal gets more expensive. How soon will ships be driven by new power? Until we find a practical method of converting combustible matter directly into electricity, steamboats will continue to be driven by steam and internal combustion motors. Is communication with possible inhabitants of other worlds in sight? I have no opinion. Is not individualistic invention haphazard and often comparatively useless? Example, the folding bed. The inventor tries to meet the demand of a crazy civilization. Folding beds are primarily due to the operation of the trade union trust, who have raised wages by force, work one-third less time, and sometimes do about one-third of the work they honestly should do, and then go on a strike one-fifth of the time. This raises the cost of houses. More people have to be crowded therein to make it pay, and thus arises the demand for folding beds. Dirty streets are due to the use of uncleanly beasts as motors. Conservativeness of people in not adopting modern motors, such as a silent, cleanly electric truck and carriage, the failure to pave well and keep clean the roads leading into the city, and legislators. Are not social machines displacing individual machines? Example, the public laundry against the domestic washing machine. The individual washing machine will hold its own for a while. Electric-driven washing machinery suitable for the small house is rapidly coming into use and the labour is reduced almost to nothing. Does not invention follow social opportunity and need? Cannot society now ordain its inventions? Society is never prepared to receive any invention. Everything new is resisted and it takes years for the inventor to get people to listen to him and years more before it can be introduced. Would you suggest the incentive of special honour to governmental inventors as a ribbon, together with monetary reward? The incentive of most of the practical inventors is to get enough money to keep their families well and to make more inventions. A ribbon from the government is to many who have a streak of vanity also an incentive. But the main incentive is to get money to make more inventions. Might not a staff of governmental inventors profitably work on safeguarding machinery? It doesn't need a government staff of inventors to invent devices to prevent people getting killed by machinery. It wants plain, unmistakable laws on the subject and a commission to see the laws are carried out. Do you agree that capital and labour are irreconcilable foes? There should be no irreconcilability between capital and labour. It's between capital dishonestly acquired and labour. Labour is not well informed and hence it classes all capital alike. The fruits of one generation of labour become the capital of the next generation. If they fought this capital, they would be fighting the savings of the grandfathers, saved for their benefit. This would be absurd. What they are really fighting is the savings of their forebears, 
which gets into other hands by chicanery and fraud and superior cunning. Has not invention put in it the power of labour, or any small group of those discontented with present conditions, to checkmate, if not wreck, our civilization? We shall always have this trouble until our school system discards traditionary methods of teaching the child and turns out young men thoroughly familiar with their natural environment and with a capacity for sound thinking. The following is Mr Edison's more informal yet perhaps even more interesting conversation. I can't answer questions like these offhand, right off the bat. What is the trend of invention? Well, electricity. But what is the most significant invention of the past year? Do you mean this country or the world? The world. Well, it would take me 15 minutes just to answer that. There are a dozen inventions. I would have to look them up, think them over, and figure out which one looked the most promising. These other questions are economic. I am not an economics man. I am a mechanical inventor. It is a complicated question, a deep study about economics, and it ought to be studied with scientific methods to get us anywhere. Here is something in the paper this morning about the effect of the new money bill. Two leading bankers make two diametrically opposing statements about it. One says it will contract credit, and the other says it will expand credit. Now, both can't be right. One must be right, and the other must be wrong. But no one can tell us actually who is right. Economic questions involve thousands of complicated factors which contribute to a certain result. It takes a lot of brain power and a lot of scientific data to solve these questions. In the first place, they ought to be studied scientifically, the same way we go about discovering the so-called secrets of nature. When I want to discover something, I begin by reading up everything that has been done along that line in the past. That's what all these books in the library are for. I see what has been accomplished at great labour and expense in the past. I gather the data of many thousands of experiments as a starting point, and then I make thousands more. On this money question, we ought to go back several hundred years before the Roman era and find out all about the financial systems and their results from that time to this. Then we would know something to build upon. There are plenty of wrong things in our society. Everything is for show. The newspapers make a show of everything. Things are wrong at the top and at the bottom. Between the two, they are fairly tolerable. There isn't too much happiness floating around, and the man who gets nearest his rightful share of it has a character, a little house in the country, and a family. What does the rich man get? He's always scheming, always suspicious of the men around him. His money is mostly out, invested. Yes, he lives in a fine house, rides in an automobile, and eats three meals a day when he feels able to. I defy anyone to prove that he gets much out of life. Money doesn't make a man happy. Things are wrong enough, and to right them, we need two remedies. One is to develop the convolutions in man's brain, those coils inside with which he does his thinking. We have gradually developed what we have in there, and if we could develop about two convolutions more, we would be able to grasp and solve our social problems. The other remedy is education. Education of the right sort in early childhood. You can't do anything with a grown man. You can't do anything or predict anything about a woman either because she is all instinct and emotion. But take a child four years old 
and its mind is plastic and whatever you put in there will always stay. Teach a child of four that the moon is made of green cheese and though you give him a thorough scientific education afterwards, there will always be, at the bottom of his mind, a feeling that the moon is somehow, possibly, made of green cheese. See how religious beliefs implanted in childhood stay with the adult in spite of everything. It is necessary to take them young and to fix ideas in those plastic minds so that it will be impossible for them to think wrong or do wrong. What we want to do in this world is to eradicate the crooks, high and low, and to do that we must begin early and prevent them from going crooked at the start. Yes, I know the socialist viewpoint, but they'll have to improve their ideas to make them practical. And so far Germany is the most socialist country and everything there is like a machine and nobody likes it. They have it in the factories where, as I saw in a comic paper over there, they prescribe how many steps to the right and left a working man takes at the noon hour in going from the factory door to his eating place. They have it in the schools, forcing all kinds of dry stuff into the heads of schoolchildren. Learning ought to be made easy and pleasant. It can be done with the aid of moving pictures. I could tell anyone a great deal about a dynamo and it would be hard for him to understand, but I could show everything in a few pictures so that a child would understand and would never forget. Now, the socialists, if they amount to anything, must improve their program, or what is generally accepted as their program. They can't hope to reduce all mankind to a dead level. They can't figure to abolish capital, which is the accumulated results of labour, mental and physical, of all the ages, and is called wealth, wealth of all the ages. They can't ignore the men who do the thinking and the guiding, the great executive minds to whom society owes most of what it has. Two men start two factories with the same resources on opposite sides of a street. One goes bankrupt, the other succeeds. Are those men equal? Or here is a man who goes into a shipyard and, without increasing the hours of labour or making anyone work harder, manages it so that three ships instead of two are built in a year. This he has done without calling for any more exertion on the part of the men and without increasing their number. Didn't he create extra value? And isn't he entitled to extra reward? Such men are not in the class of parasites or market manipulators or stock jugglers. Socialism, if it ever arrives, must provide unlimited incentive for its executive minds and its creators. Unlimited incentive. The motive that I have for inventing is, I guess, like the motive of the billiard player, who always wants to do a little better, to add to his record. Under present conditions, I use the reasonable profit which I derive from one invention to make experiments looking towards another invention. Machinery has changed things in our society, and it will change them a great deal more. The man and the machine act and interact. The time is coming when the machine will do all the work, and man will just set it to work. We will feed the raw material in one end and we'll see our shoes, clothes and everything else we need come out the other end. It's the jacquard card system that will do all this. That rug on the floor was woven that way. The pattern and everything fixed in advance. The loom had to follow the order and commandment of the card. The general use of such automatic machinery will be forced by the tactics of radical labour 
and at first the working people will suffer, but in the end they will be benefited. They are short-sighted. Those at the bottom are as short-sighted as those at the top, but you can excuse them on account of conditions and hope that someday better conditions will produce better results. The End I hope you enjoyed this thought-provoking interview from over a century ago. Although many things have been said of Thomas Edison over the past many decades, both complimentary and condescending, this interview demonstrates to me that he was, at heart, a deep thinker and a visionary. Please subscribe or follow this podcast and share it with your friends and family. I hope you enjoy a lovely week and I look forward to being with you next week when I again share stories from before.